Well, this morning, I want to speak a little bit about Gideon. Anybody, everybody in here familiar with Gideon and his story in the Bible? What a, a great character in the Bible. We, we learn about this man, and we, what I like about Gideon is, is he's a lot like us. You know, he's not, uh, he's not this, this, I mean, some people you look, I mean, you look at Paul, and a quick look at Paul, you're like, man, that guy is so far ahead of me. And that's our, that's our initial impressions. The truth is he's not. He's just like us too. But that's your initial impression of Paul. But, but Gideon, you look at what he's going through and you're like, you know what? I can relate to this guy. I, I can fit in with what he's doing. Because like Gideon, I think there's a lot of us that think that we have nothing to offer God. There's so many of us that think that we have nothing inside of us that would be worthwhile to God. Think, how can I make an impact for the kingdom of heaven? I just don't have a high enough influence with the people around me. I just don't have a high enough social status. How can I really make a change in people's lives? Or maybe we think, you know what? I'm just not talented enough. How can God use me? I'm just not good at anything. Some people think that we're not strong enough to serve God effectively. Or maybe we're not smart enough to serve God effectively. Or maybe we don't know enough. Anybody ever felt like that you're, you don't want to witness to somebody because you just feel like you don't know the Bible well enough? That, it, that oh man, God can't use me. I just don't know. Maybe if I, just, if I study for a few more months, then I'll know enough and then I'll be okay. First off, that feeling never goes away. You always feel like you don't know enough. And the good news is, is that every American that attends church knows more than 90% of the people, of the pastors in third world countries. The knowledge that you have is actually incredible of the Bible. You just don't realize it. But that's the thing is we begin to have these feelings inside of us. We feel like we're not, how can God use me? Doesn't he know who I am, what I've done? How could God use me? And Gideon, you know, he thinks like that too. And we're going to see as we look into his, his story, as we look at the small snapshot of his life, he says some of those same things. You know, how can you use me, God? Don't you know who I am? You know, the truth is that uh, if you're in one of those positions, you might actually have, even have a head start over those who are uber-gifted and uber-talented. Because the problem with people that are super-gifted in their own right is they think they can do it without God. They don't need God. The good thing about us who, who have no talents of our own, we have to trust God because if it ain't going to be for Him, it ain't going to happen. And that's a good place to be, trusting God. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, it says this, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Like, hey, that, that's me. And not many were powerful. Yep, that's me too. And not many were of noble birth. Definitely not me. It says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know what I like about this verse? Is he never says just those that are weak or those that are foolish. But he says those that are weak or those that are foolish in the world. There's a qualifier there. Because in the supernatural and God, you are none of those things. You're not weak. You're not unpowerful. So let's go ahead and, and let's get dive into what Gideon has to, to, to show us this morning. Oh, that was too many. So the first verse we're going to look at is, is Judges 6, 11 through 12. And actually, first, I'm going to go ahead and, and I don't have them up on the screen, but I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Judges 1 through 6, and then we'll talk about the next few verses before we get here, because we need to set some things up to understand what's going on. But in Judges 6, 1 through 6, it says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance. And Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste of the land as they came in and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out, for the help of the Lord. 
And then we find out in the next couple of verses that, that as they're crying out, that this is what God says. He sends a prophet to them, and then the, the prophet says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So the first thing we have to understand is Israel is being oppressed in this situation right now. Israel is being oppressed by the, the, uh, the Midians and the Amalekites and the people from the east, and, and life is just not good. Matter of fact, they're, they're hiding out in caves. They can't even plant crops because the Midians come and they just tear everything up. They steal everything. They take it all from them. And the people begin to cry out and say, God, what's going on? Why are you letting us be treated like this? And I look at these stories, and it's always like this with God, because I remember when my kids were younger, they would get in trouble. And I'd walk in the room, and they'd be so angry at me. And I'm like, well, are you mad at me? They're like, yeah, I'm mad at you. Well, why are you mad at me? Because you got me in trouble. <laughs> oh, I got you. So I'd sit down with them, with, with, go through the logic. All right, I got you in trouble. So who hit your sister? I did. Okay, you hit your sister. I didn't hit your sister, right? No, you did. Okay. So if you hit your sister, and we know that you get in trouble for hitting your sister, who got you in trouble? You got me in trouble. No, no, no. Let's look at this. Who hit your sister? I hit my sister. So if you hit your sister, who got you in trouble? I did. The funny thing is, now when we go through this stuff, I, I, start, I, go, I start through the whole process. I, are you mad at me? And now they just say no, even though they still are. No, I'm not mad at you. Because <laughs> they know the logic, but they're still mad at me. But I think that that's the way it is with God. He's like, all right, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And now they're like, God, why are you doing this to us? And he's like, wait a minute. I brought you out of Egypt, I rescued you, I put you in the promise, and I did all these things for you, and you didn't obey my voice. Now, who got you in trouble? That's, that's kind of what I feel like God is going through with him. And the truth is, God could have left it there, right? Because who got the, they got themselves in trouble. God could have just left it there. But then we continue on in the next verse, and we find that, that you know what? God still loves them, and he cares for them. And even though it's their own daggone fault... He's going to go down there and, and, and start to take care of things for them. So in Judges 6, 6, 11 through 12, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the, the terebinth. Anybody know what a terebinth is? It's a tree. Couldn't they just use the word tree? Nonetheless. He sat under a tree at Oprah, at, at Oprah which belonged to Joash the Abithian, that word, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So God could have left it there. The people had put themselves in this position. You know, how often do we blame God for the stuff that we get in our, you know, we jump in the pot ourselves and then we want to say, God, what's going on? But because he loves us, he loved the Israelites, and because of his mercy, he removes from us what we deserve. Because of His grace, He gives us what we don't deserve. And the same thing is happening in this situation here. And when the Bible mentions the, the angel of the Lord, they're talking about a physical manifestation of God. This is God Himself coming down. When it speaks of an angel of the Lord, it's one of the angels. When, when the Bible refers to the angel of the Lord, it's speaking of God. God has come down Himself to see what's going on. And he sits under this tree and he begins to watch Gideon, uh, he begins to watch Gideon from a distance. And he's working, beating out wheat in a wine press. Anybody see anything wrong with that picture? You don't beat wheat in a wine press. So the first thing we notice is that Gideon is doing something that's abnormal. He's beating out wheat in a wine press. And the reason why he's doing this is, is he's afraid. He's afraid. He's, he's planted a little crop. He's got some wheat. And he doesn't want the Midianites to come and steal it from him. So he hides in this huge wine press to beat out the wheat so nobody can see what he's doing. So already he's living a life of fear. We see that he's not a man of great courage. He's not a man that's, that's fearless, but he's a man who's fearful. This is where we begin to say, you know what? Gideon's just a regular old kind of guy. He's, he's not this super, we, we see what God does with, with his life, and he does amazing things, but 
it's not because Gideon is, you know, got a broad chin and broad shoulders and chest and he's just, you know, with huge armor and a nice white horse. He's not the perfect guy that you would think to call to this. Matter of fact, he's, he's hiding, in, hiding from his enemies, beating out wheat in a wine press. He's not a very courageous man, at least at this point. He's timid. He's fearful. But then I, you see something amazing because God comes up to him and he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now that's a strange thing for, for God to say to him because he's obviously acting fearful. He's obviously hiding. And God says, you mighty man of valor. You see, God doesn't see us as the world sees us. And God doesn't see us even as we see ourselves. God sees us as what he's done inside of us. God sees you as victorious and courageous because of the work he's done in Jesus inside of you. God knows us and he knows who we are in him. And I want you to know when, when God says to you, oh mighty man of valor, don't check with your feelings, don't check with your circumstances, just believe God. Because what God says about you is true. Amen? So then we begin to look at, at Gideon's response to what God has just said to him. And we need to recognize that at this point, Gideon doesn't know who he's talking to. This is some guy on the side of the road, as far as he's concerned. But he responds to this man who says, you mighty man of valor. He says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And this is his response. And this response echoes really the attitude of Israel of the day at that point. And he says, and Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? That was the response of Israel. If God is really with us, then why has all this happened to us? The, the blame is shifted to God again. It's kind of like, if my dad loves me, why am I grounded in my room? Because I hit my sister. Well, because you did it to yourself. But he says, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. You see, this very reason, this very response was why God sent the, the prophet in the beginning of, the, of this chapter saying that, hey, didn't I do all this stuff for you? Why have you not obeyed my voice? He said, look at what I've, the prophet said, look at what I've already accomplished for you and you have not obeyed my voice. Why are you turning from me? Why are you running away from me? Why are you pushing me away when I've done all these things and getting yourself in this mess? You know, whenever we see that God is distant from a people, when we, especially in the Old Testament, every time Israel gets farther and farther away from God and they start going through tough times, it's never because God says, I'm done with you people, and he starts walking away, then their life gets bad. It's always because they walked away in the first place. They stopped obeying his voice. They started, in this case, they were, they were tearing down their altars to God, and they were putting up altars to, to Baal. And they were putting up Asheroth to, to, wor to worship all these gods of the people that were around them. They basically said, sorry, God, we're not going to mess with you. We're going to deal with this right now. And then all of a sudden, life gets hard. And they're like, God, why have you forsaken us? And he's like, me forsaken you? I've been, I've been waiting this whole time. You turned away from me. And the interesting thing is, is that we often get ourselves in this very same mess that the Israelites are in and have the exact same response as Gideon and, and the Israelites. We get ourselves in a mess where we, we don't even take the time to say hi to God anymore. We're so busy that we don't, have to, we don't spend any time in prayer. We don't set aside time to read our Bible or spend time in prayer. And we begin to, to push God away from us as our spiritual life begins to fall into shambles. And then all of a sudden we look up and nothing is going right. And we're like, God, why did you do this to me? And he's like, I wanted to be active in your life. I wanted to make a difference, but you, you haven't let me in. You haven't made time. You've pushed me away. And if we ever get ourselves into a position like that, I thank God that he's always there waiting if we'll cry out to him again. 
I wish that we had the presence of mind to recognize that we did it to ourselves instead of blaming God. But either way, He's always there when we cry, cry out. He's there waiting for us. And He'll come back in if we'll just let Him back in. You see, unlike what we feel, especially as we shift the blame to God, unlike what we feel, He hasn't left us or forsaken us. See, that would have been a good place to say amen real loud. No matter what we feel like, God has not left us or forsaken us. He is there with us. And even in this situation, even when they had done it to themselves, God had not forsaken Israel either. But matter of fact, He came down Himself to start to deal with this problem. Because He heard the cries of His people and He had mercy on them. And He loves them. I thank God that no matter how bad I mess up, no matter how bad I stick my foot in my, my mouth or how, how bad I make the mess, that God is always there for me. And there's often consequences. In this case, the, the, the Israelites were, were oppressed by the Midianites. And oftentimes when I make a mess, there are consequences, but God always rescues me out of them. Just like He's going to rescue the Israelites and just like He'll do the exact same thing for you. So then in Judges 6, 14-18, it says the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours. Once again, guys, beating wine in a white press. Doesn't look like a mighty guy at all. But he says, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay to your return. He's starting to see who's speaking to him at this point. I mean, things are looking a little bit odd because this guy says, go in this might of yours and save Israel. Do I not send you? He's like, who are you talking? Who are you to send me? But he says, no, do I not send you? And then down here he says, but I will be with you. And he says, like, you know what? Maybe this is, this is not just some guy on the side of the road. And he starts to see, all right, well, if, if, if you... Uh, if I found favor in your eyes, let me go do a gift. He's going to provide a sacrifice to this guy just to, to kind of feel it out. He's still not sure, but he's going to go prepare a gift. But what I find interesting is that as he's trying to figure this out, God says, have I not sent you? You go and save Israel. You go in your might and save Israel. You know, God oftentimes has the same response to us when we're crying out for a problem. Is you know what, I'm not going to come out of heaven and fix everything for you with a, with a touch of a magic wand. But he says, you do it. Do you guys remember the story in Mark 9, 21 through 23? It's a, the story of the, the, the man who had the, his son who was tormented by that demon who would toss him in the fire. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said from childhood, this was Mark 9, verse 21. And now in verse 22 it says, And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'll take care of that. He says, if you can, you have faith, you believe, you cast out the demon, you take care of it. If you can. And the same thing is happening here. Crying out for help and, and God says, well, you go in this might of yours and save Israel. You do something. Now, I thank God that when we do these things, we're doing it in the name of Jesus. We're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit and with God's power, power behind us. It's not our own, our own power that's doing these things, but it's God doing it in us. But we still have to make that step. We have to do something. But then we see that, that he tells God to do something, or God tells him to do something, and the excuses start pouring out. And we're like, yep, I've been there. I've done that before. And he says, wait a minute, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest. 
I don't have any social status. I don't have any, any influence or power among my people. Matter of fact, we are the weakest clan out of all of them. How can I do something like this? And he says, and on top of that, not only am I in the, the weakest clan, the weakest clan in Manasseh, but I'm the least in that clan. Like I'm the low of the low. I'm, how can I do anything, God? You see, we do that as well when God tells us to do something. Basically, we say to God, do you even know what you're doing? I mean, seriously. Do you have any idea what you're trying to accomplish? Here's why this won't work. And we begin to explain to God all the reasons why we're not qualified. I'm not brave enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't know enough. How can I go and witness to that person? I don't know the Bible. What if he asks me a question and I don't know the answer? then I've ruined it. You should send somebody else, God. You just don't know what you're doing. I'm the wrong person. And then after that, we get through that. Say, say God makes an impression on us and we're like, well, how do I know it's really you? That's what's starting to happen here. It's like, well, if I found favor in us, let me go get a, uh, I'm not really sure if that's God or not. Let me go get a sacrifice. How, what if I, let me make sure that's really you before we go any further. We begin to ask ourselves, maybe this isn't God. Maybe it's the devil. He just wants me to make a fool of myself. That's why he's telling me to go pray for that person. He just wants me to get laughed at. That's why he's telling me to go witness to that person because he knows they're going to point and laugh at me. That's the devil doing it. First off, I want you to know that the devil's never going to ask you to pray for somebody. If, if you feel that somebody telling you to pray for somebody, it's God. It's not the devil. The devil doesn't want you to pray for somebody. He doesn't want you to witness to somebody. So, just in case you're ever feeling that, that's the answer. It's, it's not the devil, it's God. When you feel somebody say, hey, go lay hands on them. Go pray for them. Go, go tell them that I, that I love them. Yeah, it's not the devil. But I remember I used to, I used to have this argument all the time, and, and sometimes still do, when, when I feel the Holy Spirit asking me to pray for somebody, to witness to somebody. And, and, uh, and even to this day, I've made a conscience effort to, when, when I feel like God's asking me to pray for somebody, or they come up to me because they know who I am, and they say, will you pray for me? I've had to make a, a conscience effort to, to pray for them right then and there. I pray for them right then and there because it's so easy to go, oh, no problem, I'll pray for you later. And the thing is, these thoughts will run through my head when like, oh, pray for them right now. What if they laugh? What if people see us? What if people see me praying? Don't laugh. You guys have all thought, you know, I know you've thought the same thing. I'm not unique in the kingdom of heaven. Same with witnessing. What if they see me and laugh? What if they don't believe me? You see, the devil wants you to make those decisions when God's telling you to do something. He wants you to shy back. He wants you to act in fear. Let's go ahead and keep going. We're going to get to the point where Gideon's now going to know who he's speaking to. And in Judges 6, 19 through 23, so sorry this is so small, but we're going to have a few slides like this where I've got to get a lot of words on a small screen. But it says, So Gideon went to his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes for him from an ephah of flour and meat he put in a basket and and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. You know, we read these things, and to us, this happened in the space of a sentence. We don't have a concept of time, but he prepared, he slaughtered an animal, he prepared it. God waited patiently for him for probably a couple hours while he's getting this stuff ready underneath that tree. That's amazing to me, that kind of patience. I mean, like, seriously, do you really want to test that it's me? It's me. It's God. You don't need to do all this test. But he's patient with Gideon for this time that it probably took, a couple hours at least. And it says, The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did. And then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he, he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So now God 
makes his presence known. He, this is a, a, a sign of power and might. He burns up this sacrifice. And, and uh, after he exercises great patience with Gideon, the same patience that he exercises with us when we act in the same foolish way that Gideon is acting. And finally, Gideon has a full revelation of who's standing there before him. It's God. God is telling him that he's a mighty man of valor. God is telling him to go save Israel. And then he becomes frightened because to the Jewish people, to see the face of God was a fatal error. That's the kind of... You couldn't look onto the face of God without dying. So now he gets frightened. You know, it's, it's kind of funny because Gideon's like, prove that it's you. And he's like, okay. And he goes, oh no, it's you. <laughs> I'm going to die. But he says, no, it's okay, Gideon. I'll show you that it's me and you're not going to die. Have peace. But now we've got work to do. So he says, we've got some stuff to take care of. I've got, I got something that I need you to do, Gideon. And in Judges 6, 25-27, it says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build, on, build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stone laid, stones laid out in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. The first thing that we see in this situation, before we can start serving God wholeheartedly, before we can give Him everything, we've got to start tearing down the altars that are in our life. You see, these people cannot start serving the living God if they are still trying to serve Baal. And they had to tear down those altars. And the same thing is in our life. If we want to serve God wholeheartedly, we have to tear down the stuff that's in our way that stands before Him. The things that we put before God, we have to tear down. So God commands Gideon to tear down this altar and the, the Asherah, which is right next to it, which is just a big giant totem pole looking thing that's, that's uh, uh, to worship a different God. But then Gideon still begins to show a little bit of fear. Now, I know most of us would be like, how could he be afraid? God just showed himself in a powerful way. How could he be afraid? But we see that he still is. It says that he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, so he, didn't, he waited till night to obey God. But the funny thing is, is we, see, we say that when we read the story, but we've seen God's presence in our lives so many times. We've seen God be faithful. We've seen God do amazing things. Yet there are many times that we still operate in fear when we don't fully trust Him. We want to scream out loud at the top of our lungs, Gideon, what are you thinking? Don't you know what you just saw? God just spoke to you. But we do the same things in our lives. And we'll say, you know what, I've seen what God's done in my life. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. God has been so amazing. And I wish everybody had this. But I'll only witness to people if there's not a lot of people around. You know, I'll witness to the Circle K clerk only if it's midnight and there's nobody else in the store. But if it's busy, if somebody might see me, yeah. Or maybe I'll, I'll, I promise I'll pray for you, but I'll, I'll do it later. Or I'll, I'll lift my hands and worship to God because the Bible says that we should lift hands without, without wrath and without doubting and worship and surrender to God, but I'll only do it in front of certain people. I'll do it here, but if we go to a different church, you know, I don't want to do that because what if they, they point at me? You know, because we all feel like, this is what we feel like inside. I'm getting ready to pray. I'm getting ready to pray. Love you, God. And then this is what we think is going to happen. The service is going to stop. We're going to hear, and everyone's just going to turn and stare at us. That's what we feel like. Even though everybody else is just worshiping God. But instead, we, we operate in fear a lot of times. Or I'll praise God and I'll live holy in front of the church crowd. All you hear is praise God and amen and thank you, brother. Let's pray for him. But at work, now we're going to play it cool at work. I don't want to hear people hear me say praise God out loud. I'm not going to pray for something out loud because at work I'm, I'm playing it cool. That's kind of what Gideon's dealing with here. But nonetheless, 
God is still patient with Gideon, and God still, and Abidi, <laughs> Gideon is ultimately obedient. Ultimately, he does what he's supposed to do, and I praise God for that. And I thank God that, that, the, that we will still have victory if we will just be obedient to God. Even if we don't do it right off the bat, you know what, flex that, that, that faith muscle and let's be obedient to God. And he does it, and he gets ten men, and they go and they tear down that altar. So the next morning, this is what happens. Judges 6, 28-32, says, When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. How many know that when you get ten people to do something, it's not going to stay a secret for very long? It, this took a bit of work to tear down this altar. This is an extravagant altar built to Baal, and it's got the Asherah next. It took some work to tear it down. Yeah. It took some work. And ten people didn't stay a secret for very long. So, they said to one another, Who has done this? And they found out. And then in verse 30 it says, The men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. And Joash said to the, all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called to Jerubal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. You know something that's interesting in this story is Gideon's dad didn't get upset. Gideon was, Gideon's dad... Joash was a, was a worshiper of Baal. This was his altar. This was his bull that got killed to be altered on this thing. But you see, God is at work. You know, when you'll be obedient for God, God's going to take care of you. He's going to make sure that you're all right. He's going to be right there with you. And like he says, go, I'll be with you. Did I not send you? And God must have worked on his father's heart, Joash's heart, because he doesn't get upset. Instead, he actually begins to, to mock Baal, this, this false god that they're worshiping. And he says, hey, what are you guys getting so upset for? If he's really a god, why did he let this happen? Have him come down here and contend for himself. You know, it's funny. Elijah did something very similar when he was dealing with the prophets of Baal. In First Kings 18.27, this is one of the funniest verses in the Bible to me. It says, At noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be wakened. You know, there's this mocking of this false God. You see, Gideon was successful because he was obedient. And I want you to know that if you'll be obedient to God, you'll be successful. You don't have to be the strongest person. You don't have to be the smartest person. You don't have to be the most talented person. You just have to be faithful. Talented people are a dime a dozen. But faithful people, those are hard to come by. Be faithful and God will use you to do incredible things. And this is just the start for Gideon. But then Gideon begins to show that he's much like us again. He says, I just want to be sure it's really you. The whole burning up the offering in fire, that was pretty impressive, but I still got to be sure. So Judges 6, 36-40 says, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Isn't it funny? He says, God, you have said it, but let's, let's just be sure. You know, God's not a man that he would lie or the son of man that he would change his mind. If God says something to you, you can, you can bet on it. But he says, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will, have saved, that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he, fr he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then, God said, then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. 
please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. You would think that after what he had seen, that would be enough. But instead he wants to put God to the test. And I think that that's our initial response, is to almost be a little judgmental of Gideon in this situation. Because we're like, dude, what is wrong with you? But we do it too. God works in our lives and, and we have an incredible thing happen. We see miracles. And the next time something comes against us, our first instinct is to, God, why is this happening to me? Or with many Christians, it's almost just like this story. How many people have, have heard or maybe even done it for yourself? Lord, if you'll just let this happen, then I'll serve you forever. God, just, just let this person be healed or let me get this job or let me do this, let me do that. And if you'll do this, God, then I'll serve you with everything that I have. And God honors that. He says, okay, and He does it for us. And then the next time something tough comes up, we're same prayer right back out. Oh God, if you'll do this, then I'll serve you forever. We begin to lay out these ground rules for God, we, these, these contracts. If you'll do this, I'll do that. This has been referred to as putting out the fleece when people act like this. You know, this story, this part right here is not to show us what we're supposed to do to make sure it's God. This is not the right way to test if it's God. What this here is showing us is the, the act of a man who has little faith. He's acting in unbelief. This is not the, the acts of a faithful person. And, and as faithful Christians, this is not how we should be testing God. But I thank God that even still, that He is gracious and understanding, even though we put Him to the test. Because we're instructed not to put, Jesus, or put God to the test. How many of you know that? In Luke 4.12, when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was being tempted by the devil, Jesus answered the devil and said, It is said, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. We're not supposed to test God. Matter of fact, the only place in the entire Bible that it says that we're supposed to test God is in our giving. The only place that it says to test God. But everywhere else, we're supposed to trust God. I think it's in, uh, is it Mal- Malachi? Yeah, the end, of, end of Malachi says, test me in this. See if I won't open the windows of heaven for you. But the good news is, is, even with the testing, he still uses he still uses Gideon. He doesn't give up on him. He doesn't turn away. He has incredible patience, which I'm thankful for because I wonder how many times I've put God to the test. And I'm so thankful that he doesn't just turn away. He still uses him. He doesn't leave him. He doesn't choose another to do it. But he stands by him and says, all right, Gideon, let's go through this again. But I want you to know that Gideon saw and he believed. But we're more blessed if we believe without seeing. Matter of fact, Thomas went through the same. Remember, you know, doubting Thomas? I mean, matter of fact, his unbelief gives him the nickname. To this day, we refer to him as doubting Thomas. I never want to be referred to as doubting Wayne. I want to be known as a man who trusted God in everything. In John 20, 24 through 30, it says, Now Thomas was one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, We have seen the Lord. But he said, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He's putting out the fleece. He's making you know, requirements for God. I'll believe you if you do this. And even still, God is patient with him. And eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. Let's not put out the fleece like Gideon, but let's trust God at His Word. When we say, you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, when we, when we realize that God has said it, let, let's let that be enough for us. So now we're going to go and, and, and we've gotten through this. Gideon's like, all right, I believe you. We've done every test I can think of. I believe you. Let's, let's move forward. And in Judges 7, verses 1 through 3 says, Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So the thing we have to understand in this story is Gideon's going against a massive army. They actually don't give a specific number in the Bible, but this is what it says in Judges 7.12 when it's describing the army that they're going against. In verse 12 of Judges chapter 7, it says, And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. He's facing probably hundreds of thousands of men. They can't be counted. They're innumerable. And he's got 32,000 men to go against this army. And he's like, all right, God's with us. They got hundreds of thousands, probably. We got 32,000, but God's with us. Let's do this. And God's like, well, you have too many people. Do you not, God, do you know what you're doing? Do you not see the, the ratio that we have going on? But he says, all right, make this announcement. Anybody who's afraid, go home. And this really isn't a, uh, anything groundbreaking. This was actually the law in Deuteronomy. It says, and the officer shall speak. This is Deuteronomy 28. It says, and the officer shall speak further to the people and say, if there are any man who is fearful and faint-hearted, let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. This was the law in Deuteronomy. When you're going to war, send them people that are afraid home so it doesn't cause any more problems. So now he's got 10,000 men left. And he's probably like, okay, God, we're down to 10,000, but you're with me. I did the fleece test twice. I know you're with me. Let's do it. But then he goes on, because we're not done yet. But I want you to know this is the same thing that God has for our life as well. In Ephesians 2, 8-9, eight, eight it says, For by the grace of God you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Even the work done in our lives is under the same principle of God. His, this principle is found all the time. God doesn't want men to boast for what He accomplished. So oftentimes He puts us into situations where it can be no one else other than God. Like in this case with 10,000 men. But like I said, we're not done yet. Because God says there's still too many. So in Judges 7, 4-7, through 7, it says, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Now how many know that Gideon's probably having a are you kidding me moment? <laughs> like seriously, 10,000, you already took away 22,000 people and you still think I have too many. And God says, Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men whom, who lapped, I shall save and give the Midianites to your hand, and let all others go, every man to his home. 10,000 down to 300. You see, 32,000 against this army of the Midianites probably seemed overwhelming. 10,000 seemed incredibly overwhelming, but God says, we're not done. And he sets up a test. He says, send them down to the water to take a drink. 
And there's been a lot of stuff that's been written about this and how they took a drink. Some say that those who lapped with their hands, the, the, the picture here is that the ones who knelt down were on all fours and they were putting their mouth down to the water. And they couldn't see anything but their face in the water. But those that, that kneeled down and lapped the water like a dog, they, they knelt down and they took the water up to their mouth and lapped it out of their hands. So they were staying upright. So some people have said that, that those who went down on, on their knees, they weren't prepared. They made themselves vulnerable to the enemy because you can't see what's going on when your face is down in the water. But those who were, were just knelt down and they brought the water up to their mouth, they were still staying alert. Some have said that, that those who put their mouth down on the water took their eyes off Gideon, but those who stayed up, they kept their eyes on Gideon. They kept their eyes on their leader. And I don't know if any of these are true. There's, it doesn't really say exactly what's going on here. For all, all we know, it could be just a simple test that God administered. But I do know that God is looking for people who are unafraid. That's the first test. The, the 32,000 down to 10,000, God looking for people who are unafraid. And I do know that God is looking for people who will serve them without compromise. Which is very similar to that second test. Were they compromising themselves to get the water or were they staying alert and ready? But I tell you what, if he wasn't having an are you kidding me moment when God said 10,000 is too many, I guarantee you he did when he says 300 is enough. 300 men against an army that's been described as the sands on the seashore. Innumerable. So many camels these aren't even soldiers, just camels that you couldn't even count them all. And God's like, eh, 300 will do it. I tell you what, when you win a war like that, it's God. There's no man that can say that was me. But then God says, you know what, I'll give you more evidence. I've already burnt up the offering. I've already passed your fleece test twice. But I'll still give you more evidence, Gideon. And he says, in Judges 7, 9-14, it says, That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened to go down against the camp. You know, at this point, I'm hoping, and I'm like, Gideon, just say, You know what, Lord? I trust you. I don't need to go down there. Whatever you say is so. But once again, <laughs> Gideon acts like the rest of us. And he's like, Let's just be sure. So he, he, he heads down. It says, <clears throat> that, uh, where was that? Uh, then he went down with his purest servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp, verse 12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. That's a huge army. Then when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. Now we see that God is even talking to the enemy in visions and dreams. And I've, I, this dream is just hilarious to me. A loaf of bread rolled down and destroyed their tent. So God is gives this man this dream. And then on top of that, he gives another man the ability to interpret what has just been said. How many of you said, roll of bread rolling down the hill takes out a tent? Utter defeat. That's what that means. Not the first thought that comes to my mind. But nonetheless, his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. You see, I know God wasn't surprised when Gideon decided to go down to the camp and hear the dream. But I wonder, even though God wasn't surprised, God knew what was going to happen, he still gave Gideon the opportunity to exercise his faith. And he wasn't surprised, but I wonder if there wasn't a, a hint of disappointment. Even though he knew it was going to happen, you know, I think God wants us to act in faith. And he'll still be with us. He'll, he'll stay with us. And like I said, I just wanted Gideon to say, no God, I believe you. I don't need to hear anything more. I trust you. I want that for my life. I want when God says to me, I believe you. I don't need to hear anything. I don't need any evidence. On your word, I'll do what you ask. And I want that for all of your lives as well. 
But I thank God that even when we slip up, then when we, we go ahead and go for that extra step, that He is still with us no matter what. Because in the end, Gideon was victorious. Him and his 300 men defeat an, armor, an army that is innumerable. In Judges 7, 19-22, it says, So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, and the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars, and they held in their left hands the torches and the right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshittah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Ebel-Mehalah by Tabit. This is why I don't preach from the Old Testament. I can't pronounce any of the words. So <laughs> they won. They blew the trumpets, and they won. What I find is interesting is they didn't even take swords. They went out with a pot in one hand and a trumpet and a torch in the other. And they surrounded the army. They broke the pots. They made a bunch of noise. They yelled for the Lord and for Gideon. And everybody, the army just got up and got scared. Some of them ran away and some of them killed each other. And ultimately, Gideon won. Now that's God. That's God. God was with him. God, it didn't matter that Gideon wasn't a good warrior. You know what? I'm not even going to use your sword. It didn't matter that Gideon didn't have all the qualities that we expect in an incredible leader. God gave the victory to Gideon and the Israelites in his strength, in God's strength, not in the strength of Gideon and the people that were with him. Like I said, they didn't even take weapons. They just went out there and made a bunch of noise. That huge army just fled. Or they killed each other. See, this should be a great encouragement to all of us because God doesn't need us to be super talented. He doesn't need us to be super smart. He just needs us to trust Him and be obedient to what He has for us. And I want you to know that if you'll do those things, God can and will do great things through you. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.